So this summer, we took our daughter to college at CSU Monterey Bay. Nice place to have your daughter go to college. Fun to visit there. Uh, I, we have some extended relatives in that area. They're on my side of the family. And we went and we visited them. And my cousin Shirley is about 10 years older than me. And she put together this great spread, which that family, that side of the family, is famous for. And we began talking about food. And she said, you know, I think my grandmother, that would be my great-grandmother, we called her Grandma Ellen, was the best cook and hostess I have ever known. And then we began to reminisce on some of the incredible meals we had eaten in our childhood, especially at Christmas Eve. You know, Christmas Eve, the whole family get together. We had these incredible meals. And she said, if you just drop by grandma's, she had something that was good. And I remembered one time I went by and I had a hot dog there, and it was the best hot dog I'd ever had. Have you ever known anybody like that, or do you know somebody like that that is just an incredible cook or hostess or both? We're going to talk about a lady that could probably fall in that category today, but we'll find that even though that was her strength, sometimes she got her priorities mixed up. And we're also going to talk about her sister, who, at least in this passage, had her priorities in the right place. Anybody want to guess who we're talking about today, the two sisters? Martha and Mary. So if you grew up in church, going to children's Sunday school, you certainly know who Martha and Mary are. And if you've been going to church for any length of time, you've heard them referenced. But they're relatively unknown people. We don't know that much about them, and that's why they fit perfectly into our sermon series entitled Unknown. What we're talking about are disciples or followers of Jesus who are lesser known or in some cases unknown. And today we're going to find out a little bit more about Martha and Mary. Their story is told for us, at least part of that story is told for us in Luke chapter 10, verses 40, 38 through 42. So I'm going to read it and you can follow along. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he had to say. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the, left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. So we look at that passage and what I see is that Jesus' meal is better than Martha's meal. Jesus' meal is better than Martha's meal. And if you don't understand that yet, stay tuned because I think you'll figure it out as we conclude, as we tie this together today. First of all, let's get the setting. Let's take a look at the setting. Verses 38 through 42. What's going on here? Jesus and his disciples obviously in travel mode. And as we piece all this together and scholars have researched it and so forth, we have a pretty good idea that this event is taking place while Jesus or after Jesus has gone to a Jewish holiday called the Feast of, um, the Feast of Tabernacles, which would have taken place in October, about AD 29, so about six months before the crucifixion and resurrection. So it's right around the time that it is for us now. It's harvest time. That's when they would have this particular holiday. And this event would have taken place after last week's message around the same time where the 72 missionaries, so to speak, or disciples, unknown disciples, went out to speak to people. And now Jesus and his, his group of disciples are traveling. 
into this little town. And it doesn't tell us where it is. It's just a village. In fact, the word for village means it's a little village with no walls around it. So they can just walk right in. Now, when they went to little villages, there were no hotels and motels. Everybody's kind of clustered together. Where would they stay? Remember last week? What happened? They went to people's homes. And so they would go to the home, and, and that's where they would stay. The word for house here is house, could also be translated household. Anybody want to guess what the word is, the Greek word is? Oikon. It's another oikon, or from the word oikos, that we talk about a lot of times in our church. See, that's how Jesus did ministry. He didn't go and knock on door to door to door. He didn't send out all sorts of publications and these big telemarketing. He didn't, do, of course, he didn't have television. But he didn't do all these different crazy things that we do. Not that it's all wrong, but his ministry was based on building relationships with people. And so he would go to a house like that, and he would get involved in the network within that house. And the houses were different than they are today because people would live with their family but also with their extended family, also with servants and sometimes friends. And so when you talked about an oikon, you're talking about between 8 to 15 people. And that's what we always remind you, that you may feel like, boy, I'd like to help take care of this world of mine. I don't know where to start. Well, the problem is, is you can't take care of the world. It's too big. There's too many things buying for your attention. But you can pay attention to the 8 to 15 people that God has already placed in your life. Those are, that's your oikon, uh, or what we call your oikos. Who are they? And how can you love and minister to those people that God has placed in your life? That's where Jesus starts. In this particular case, as he comes to this town, Martha appears to come out and welcome him. She initiates, which clues us in that she seems to have known him from before. This isn't the first time that he stayed with her. So what's going on here? To understand it better, we can go to other passages that talk to us about Martha and Mary, and there aren't very many. The biggest one is chapters 11 and 12 of John. In John, chapters 11 through 12, we have a lot more information on Martha and Mary. And one of the first things that we find out is that they lived in Bethany. Bethany was the name of their town. Cute name for a town, huh? Once upon a time, a pastor said, wouldn't Bethany be a cute name for a little girl? And the rest is history. It is a cute name. If that's your name, it means, in Hebrew, house of figs. <laughs> Maybe not so cute, huh? Well, anyway, it sounds cute in, in English. So Bethany is the name of this little village, and the village was about two miles from Jerusalem. So it's very close. So Jesus goes to this holiday, and, you know, there in Jerusalem, and then he goes over there. And it appears that he did this pretty frequently because this event in chapters 11 and 12 of John, it appears to be taking place not long before he died. So this is in the spring. So this is like five months or so later. Another occasion than what we're talking about today. And then if we go to Matthew chapter 21, verse 17, it says that the week that he was you know, to be crucified, the Passion Week itself, the last week of his life, he was staying in Bethany. And guess who he was probably staying with? Martha and Mary. This happens so frequently that scholars call Bethany Jesus' Judean home or headquarters. 
So it's in the district of Judea, two miles from Jerusalem, which is also in the same district. And every time Jesus went to Judea, he appears to stay with Martha and Mary. Every time Jesus went to a, some kind of a Jewish religious holiday, of which there were many in Jerusalem, he would stay with Martha and Mary. And he's been doing this now for about three years. The first time he may have just knocked on the door. And he said, this looks like a big home. I've got 12 disciples, some other ladies that are with me, a pretty big entourage. Can you guys accommodate us? And now for three years, he's been coming. And he keeps coming back. And this time she comes out and she says, hey, here you are. Come on in. Come on in. I'm all ready for you. I figured you'd be coming pretty soon. I heard you were in town. And that she's just like the hostess with the mostest. What else do we know about her? We know that as we go to John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, guess what she's doing? Preparing a meal. This lady liked to cook. And she probably had servants and she would administer these great meals and these great times. We know that she seems to be the oldest because her name is mentioned first always. And she seems to be the mistress of the house. She runs things. We know that they had a brother named Lazarus who may have lived with them that we don't know that for sure. Some people say, were they married? Were their husbands absent? We don't know. I'm inclined to think that they were either never married or perhaps widowed, and even maybe elderly. But at any rate, Jesus goes to stay with them, and we'll find out that information when we get to heaven. What we do know is they were very hospitable. She's a very hospitable lady. Come one, come all. That's the way she is. We have some other information about her character. Her brother Lazarus became ill, and he was ill for some time. And she sent people to Jesus that he might come and heal her brother. Jesus didn't make it on time. And when Jesus finally came, she said to him, if you had come, I know you could have healed my brother. In John chapter 11. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Do you believe that? Do you believe I can still heal him? And listen to this incredible quote by Martha in John chapter 11, verse 27. She says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into this world. She was a godly woman. She was an amazing woman. How about her sister, Mary? Mary, when her brother died, she went to the tomb and wept with Jesus. And then Jesus, of course, rose him from the grave. The last week of Jesus' life, Mary took some very expensive perfume and she anointed his feet and his head with it, even as a sinful lady had done uh, earlier in his ministry. And one of Jesus' disciples, uh, Judas Iscariot, he was upset by this. He said, this is a waste of money. And Jesus says, no, she has prepared my body for burial. These are two very interesting ladies, imperfect as we all are, and so we can learn from their lives things they do right, things they do wrong. In this case, we pick up the story and we see that Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. That's startling. It's remarkable. Why? If you take that phrase and you compare it with another verse, Acts chapter 22, verse 3, it says the same thing. But it's translated usually a little bit different, so it's easier for us to understand. In the translation, it says that Paul, the great apostle, was under the leadership of the great Jewish rabbi, leader, uh, teaching of um, great Jewish rabbi and teacher, a man by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was his mentor. 
was the man who discipled or trained him for ministry. Literally, that passage reads that Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel. You see, this was a figurative way of describing discipleship. And we've kind of lost that today. In those days, discipleship was when you would follow a person. So you would take a rabbi and he would get some guys around him and there could be quite a number of them, and then he would begin to train them. And it was intentional. It would be part of his life. And he would teach them about Judaism, and he would teach them about life. And they would become his followers, his disciples. Jesus did the same thing with his 12. And it appears that they passed this on through the years, but the difference is today when we do this is we may have some people that we're training, but we're training them to follow Jesus, not follow us. We don't want any disciples for ourselves, but they're people that we train to follow Jesus. And so this was something that was common, but what's amazing about it is rabbis never taught women. Women were never discipled. But it's quite clear that Mary and I believe Martha were discipled by Jesus. So Jesus strikes a blow for womanhood in this chapter. And we may say, well, why didn't he do more? And and why didn't he end slavery? And why didn't he end war? And why didn't he end poverty? He has, basically. It's called heaven. For those that want to follow him, that's where you'll ultimately end up, and it's all taken care of there. But you can't take care of everything here on earth with sinful fallen people. What he does do is he essentially says, follow me. Get to know me. Follow what I teach, and if you really follow it, all these things will be taken care of if everybody does that. Because you can't with a clear conscience do these things if you're following me. You'll do the right things. It's what we say here at the church. Our love for God leads us to love our world. And that is central. That is the central theme to this passage. It will keep coming up. This idea of if you follow Jesus, you will be compelled to love others and do the right things. Now, we see what Mary's doing. Now let's see what's going on with Martha. She is preparing preparations. So preparations in this case is diakonion, which is a great Greek word from which we get deacon. And it means to serve, but in this context, it always means to serve a meal. She's preparing this elaborate meal for everybody, but she is distracted. And the word for distracted means that she's being pulled in different directions. And it's causing her quite a bit of anxiety. And so what's happening here is she wants to be sitting at Jesus' feet with her sister and probably was, but then she got up and said, I better fix the meal. This sound kind of familiar with people in the room? Some of you can relate to this. And all of a sudden now she's off fixing the meal. Where's my sister? Why is she not helping me? She probably has servants, but you know, she says, I'm not supposed to be leading this by myself. I'm not the only mistress of the house. Where's my sister? I'm doing all this work and I really want to be doing what you're doing. You get to have all the fun and I'm doing all the work. Does that sound familiar to some of us? And here's the key here. It says that she's doing it because it had to be done. Who said it had to be done? Yeah, you bet she did. That's what happens to us. That's where I get in trouble. I feel like I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. I'm going to force it through. And I'm so upset because it's not working out. What's going on? That's what's happening to her. She's getting really upset. So she goes to Jesus and she's, you know, she's upset. And she says to him, 
You, she basically says, Lord, I know you understand what's going on. I know you can see what's happening with my sister. So just tell her to get off her duff and come and help me. <laughs> I agree with those that say that this brings kind of a human touch to the story. Anybody who's had a sibling can relate to this. <laughs> and isn't it interesting how different they are? So different. And this is not mythology. This is not a made-up story because made-up stories don't talk critically of people like this and they don't give these different perspectives. This is history. These are two real women who loved each other but struggled with each other, being very different, and one woman feeling like she had to fulfill her goals that nobody was asking her to do. And so it sets up the lesson that Jesus is now going to teach her. The lesson that he gives us is in verses 41 through 42. Um, and I don't believe this is it. I don't believe this is all of it. I cannot imagine that he told this to Mary and she just sat there quietly and said, okay, I get it, I'll be okay. I think this was a discussion that may have gone on a half hour or more. But we're given a synopsis because he can't write pages and pages and pages on each story. So Luke gives us the basic synopsis of what he heard happened. And this is what happens. Jesus calms her down. Martha, Martha, it's okay. Don't be upset. I understand you're upset. I, can, I feel sorry for you in the sense that, you know, I, I don't like to see you this upset over things, but let's talk about it. You are so anxious. You are so upset. You are so concerned about these matters. And though they're important, they pale in insignificance to the things that are really important. The things you're concerned about are here today and will be gone tomorrow. You've got your perspective wrong, Martha. You're thinking about the wrong things. What you really need to see is that your sister understands the better part. What is, therefore, the better part? What is it that Mary is presently doing in this story? She is listening to Jesus, and I believe talking to him probably too. She is interacting with Jesus. Physically speaking, Martha could have gone to Jesus and said, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to prepare the meal now. Is this a good time or do you have more to say? I don't think she did. I think she got up and said, I think it's time to prepare the meal. She never interacted with the Lord. Today, Jesus is always with us. So we can always interact with him. Even now when I'm, I'm speaking, I find myself talking to him sometimes and help me out here. Help me to remember. What do you want me to say? Because he's with me right now. You can't see him, but I believe he's here. I believe there are angels here. There's a spiritual forces in this room. And, and we can always talk to him because that's always true wherever you're at. Whether you're at work or at home, you can talk to God. And we should be interacting with him always. It's not like we get uptight about, should I stand up now or should I sit down? It's not that. You just, you just interact with him. And if you're interacting with God, and if you are on a regular basis, you're reading your Bible, you're meditating on what the Bible says, you're praying, you maybe set some time aside to spend with God, and then you have other times throughout the day you're just talking to Him, guess what? You're not going to feel this level of anxiety. But you can do really good things and still feel upset and empty about it when it's all over. And that's because you're not doing it with Him, you're doing it by yourself, even though He's there. And that's the point of this passage is that we need to be working first with him. It's not an accident that this passage follows the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that? 
And the, the Jewish religious leader says, how can I have eternal life? Jesus says, what do you think? And he quotes them. The first thing he quotes him is the Jewish Shema, their statement of faith found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. We should love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, with everything that we have. It gets back to what we were just saying. We need to love our God, Lord with everything he has. Then he goes on to say we should love our neighbors ourselves. But the key is if we love God with all our heart, all our mind, our soul, if we're interacting with him on a daily basis, then we will be compelled to love others and do all the other things. Jesus says in that parable that we'll be compelled to love even our enemies. And so that's what God is getting us to do as we build a relationship with him. He needs to be central to all that we do in our life. Now, there's one more thing that Jesus says that's very intriguing here. When it says the better part, it literally says the better portion. It's a play on words. Portion as in a meal. That's why Jesus is saying to her, my, my portion, my meal, it's spiritual and it's better than yours. Put your attention on my meal. Eat from it and you'll do a lot better. So when we put it that way, I want to give us some examples today. We're going to ask a question, which is, why is Jesus' meal better? And I'll look at, we're going to look at four, and some may, four examples, and some may relate to you more than others, but I want you to think about some of these. The first one is that Martha's meal brings anxiety. And she's, she's getting all worked up. We've talked about that. That happens to me a lot of times, my... Um, my wife and the guys I work with will tease me sometimes because I tend to live in the future. I'm a goal setter, see? So I, I get way out in front, and I, you know, I'm fretting about things that aren't even happening yet, and I set these goals. My wife sees it at home. I'll set these goals for things that need to be done, and I've got to get this done today. I can't eat until I get this done. It's like, why? And then I'll stop and think, there really isn't a reason why. It's just because I've imposed this on myself. You ever have that happen? And I'm learning that I'm, it might be something that's really good, but I need to back off, sometimes postpone what I'm doing, pray about it, reevaluate, and say, do I really need to do this? Maybe I need to do it, but at another time. Maybe I do need to do it, but with a better attitude. And I need to make sure I'm talking with God and I'm getting right with Him. So for you, I have a couple questions. One is, what do you need to trim from your schedule, so to speak? What do you need to postpone and revisit? You may be planning a meal, and people are sick, and you're run down, but you've got to have these people over. Do you? Is that what God's calling you to do? Maybe the circumstances, as you pray about it, you realize this isn't the right time. You may say, we've got to go on this trip now, but it may not be the right time for the trip. It may be your work schedule. In fact, you may not be spending time with your family and friends like you should, and you're not spending time with God. You're not reading the Bible. You don't have any, you know, you don't have any time with God through the week, and so you're spending time at work, or you're spending time working out, or you're spending time doing your studies, and somehow you're feeling frustrated and angry, and relationships are hurting, and you're anxious because God's not in it. You're doing good thing in the wrong way. See, see what happens? We can have that happen to us so easily, so stop and back off. Spend some time praying about it. Maybe read the Bible a little bit and say, God, what's going wrong here? Am I supposed to even be doing this, or should I just back off and revisit it? What do you want me to do at this time? It seems like I'm pushing this on my own. Maybe God says, no, I, I, you, know, you realize I do need to do this, but now my heart is right. I've talked to God about it, and I feel convinced in my heart I need to proceed, but with a better attitude. 
Now, there's another example, and that is Martha's Mary is temporary. Remember, not that long ago, we looked at Luke chapter 12, verses 22 to 34, and it says we shouldn't worry about temporary things. We have these beautiful flowers. I don't know if you've noticed, but they've pretty much disappeared now. The leaves on the trees, that beautiful green foliage, is starting to fall away. Nothing lasts forever. You know, these things are temporary. But we get so caught up with things that are temporary in our lives. And for some, you know, like Martha, it's fixing these great meals and stuff. For many of us today in our modern world, it takes so many different forms, things that we might be good at, hobbies we might have, but they can consume us. So my question is, what things consume you or do you even make idols of? Cars? Can be television? Computer? We spend a little bit of time on those. Sports, school, I didn't put in houses, work around the house and taking care of that house. Even people, even though that's not a you know, temporary thing, they, we can make those more important than God. And we can get to the point where these things are consuming us. They're not bad, but if you're spending more time on the computer than you are spending time talking to God and reading his Bible, the Bible stuff, some, there's something out of balance. You should be doing, even when you're doing the computer, you should be, he's right there. When you're watching television, remember, you should always be thinking, he's right there. When you go to the movies, he's right there. He's watching it with you. That may help you think maybe whether you should be watching it or not, right? Um, He's there with you. So we need to be aware of his presence and interacting with him in everything we do. And it brings so much more peace and joy to our lives when we we choose to really yield to him. Now, Jesus' meal, this is the contrast, brings fulfillment. John chapter 10, verse 10 says that we are to live life to the full. In other passages, in other translations, it says that we are to look at life as our life should be abundant, it should be fulfilling. Life should be fulfilling, it should be meaningful. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17, says that um, we are to have joy, it says be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's one passage that tells us how this should work out. We should have this deep-seated fulfillment in our hearts, even when times are hard, because we know God is with us. We should be talking to him all the time. I had a professor, a Greek professor, who said that word means it's like a hacking cough. It's like, you know, it's, it's not like you're, you're literally always talking, but it's like you're always ready to talk to him. You know he's there. We should be giving him thanks. This should be how we roll. This should be how we are. That's, that's us. And when we get away from that, then we lose that fulfillment and we have a problem. What are some of the things that bother us? I, was, I went on my bookshelf looking for a book and I thought, oh, this is a small one. Uh, so I, I looked at it, thought I'd maybe get through this one. Uh, it's my wife's. It's an old book that my wife has, Faith is Not a Feeling by Nay Bailey, who is really a respected Christian lady, uh, Christian leader over the course of the last oh, several decades, and I, I remembered her, and I thought, wow, she, she seemed like a neat lady. I heard her speak once, and so I picked it up and looked at it, and she had some interesting things to say. She had a lady, she gives an example of a lady named Jackie, who was also a, a leader in ministry, who was struggling with her faith, and this is how she addressed it. Listen to this. I think there's some real wise counsel she gives this lady. She says, do you have a Bible close by? And, and Jackie says, yes. She says, okay, turn to 1 Peter. I I know you say you don't believe the Bible right now, but for a few minutes, let's just pretend you do. 
I asked her to start reading aloud verses 6 through 10 of chapter 5. She began, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. What does he tell you to do? She said, Humble myself. How do you humble yourself? She continued to read, Casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. How many anxieties? All. And why are you supposed to do that? Jackie's voice sounded almost hopeful, because he cares for me. Yes, I answered, he cares for you. Now, read the next line. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, Jackie, what is God's warning to you? To be on the alert. Why? Because the devil is out to get me. Who is the devil? He is my adversary. Okay, read the next verse. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers who are in the world. What does this tell you to do, Jackie? Resist Satan. How do you resist him? By being firm in my faith. What is faith? Taking God at his word. And what does the passage next say? Knowing that the same experiences of sufferings are being accomplished by your brothers who are in the world. Jackie, this means that you aren't alone in this. Other people are going through the same things you are. One of Satan's tricks is to make you think that you're all alone. In the next verse, God promises, after you have suffered for a little, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What, are you, uh, what you are going through won't last forever. And she said, I continued, I want you to memorize these verses, and since the whole passage is talking about choosing to believe God's truth over Satan's lies, I want you to write in the margin of your Bible these words, choose to believe. Now, it didn't, take, didn't heal her right away. It took time. But she kept reading her Bible and kept memorizing these passages over a length of time. And finally, things changed. And then this is what Jackie had to say. She said, the thing that freed me was realizing I was in a spiritual battle. I began to realize I had an old nature that was hostile toward God and prone to doubt. But I also had a new nature that could respond to God. I realized, too, that my will was the key. With my will, I could choose to believe God and take, choose to take him at his word, regardless of what my feelings were or my old nature told me. When I began to get into the habit of believing God, my doubts faded. You hear what she's saying there? I have people come to me with doubts or concerns, and I have to confess that oftentimes when they do, I I think it's an intellectual problem, and I try to solve their intellectual problem. And what I have learned, even in recent weeks, so to speak, is that people seldom have an intellectual problem, almost never have an intellectual problem. 98% of the time, the problem is a spiritual problem. There is a devil. And Halloween sometimes gives him undue recognition doesn't always make me happy because it's not all funny. He's really there. And he will play with your mind. And today, some of you might think, that person snubbed me. You have no evidence. That person may love you to death. Who put that in your mind? You may think of somebody and think, well, they don't like me. Who puts that in your mind? You may think, God can't use me. Who put you in that mind? That's exactly opposite of what the Bible says. And so what Nabe Bailey is saying is that when we have those doubts, we go right to the Bible and we listen to what Jesus has to say to us. What does he have to say? 
And you can go to passages, but here's the key. You have to have the will to do it. If you come in and you say, I'm not going to believe no matter what, guess what? You won't believe. But if you say, I want to believe, this may be hard on me, but I'm willing to believe and I'm, I want to trust you, God, then guess what? All the pieces of that proverbial puzzle will come together. It may take time, but it's a matter of memorizing these things. So here you go. What are you presently struggling with? What doubts do you struggle with? Find a passage that will help you. Memorize it and meditate on it. Here's some passages that you can look at. Google passages. You can Google this on topics like depression, anger, greed, fear, wisdom. Find a passage. Memorize one verse a day. Think about it all day long. And if you do that, I guarantee, if you're really seeking to walk with God, it will help bring healing in that area to some degree. It'll keep helping you. Now, you need others to help you too, but we don't always listen to God, see? And we can listen to God today. There's one more thing here, and that is that uh, Jesus' message his meal, rather, is eternal. It lasts forever. It gives you an eternal perspective. We'll be with him forever in heaven if we know him. And so if you're not yet in a relationship with Jesus, we want to offer that to you today. How do you do that? You admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again. And you choose to follow Christ and put your faith in him alone. And if you're interested in that, please come and talk to us about it. Several years ago, a friend of mine, Steve, one of my best friends from high school, came to visit us in San Diego. His son was in a baseball tournament. We went to watch the games, and while we were there, he introduced me to another lady who had gone to high school with us, and her son was on the team. And she was a couple years ahead, so we played the game of what happened to this person, what happened to that person, you ever done that? And you know, we were going back and forth, and she said, do you remember Gary Erickson? I said, oh man, I, how could I forget that dude? He played two trumpets at the same time. I'm not kidding. He could play two trumpets. I said, he blew me away. I was, in high, I was a freshman, and I just thought, this guy is unbelievable. I said, is he still playing? She says, I think he plays in nightclubs every once in a while. She said, but that's not what he became famous for. As he became famous, what did he become famous for? She said, he invented a health bar. Really? And he named it after his dad. I said, what was his dad's name? Cliff. He invented the Cliff Bar? I mean, shoot, if I had been close to this dude, I wouldn't be doing this job. <laughs> I'd be handing out health bars. Right? And then I got to thinking, there's a name for Jesus' spiritual health bar. He's called the Bread of Life. And if you spiritually chew on what he has to say and think about it and apply it to your life, you will have spiritual health and a life that's fulfilling. And I can almost hear Martha saying, maybe here today, saying in the background, that's right. That's right. We join with me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the examples of people in Scripture. Thank you for showing us that Martha was um, a sinner just like the rest of us. And pray that we can grow from this example and draw closer to you and keep our focus on you that we might experience your victory in this life. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.